Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This particular veteran served 20 years in the United States Army. He was a combat medevac pilot in Vietnam and was shot down in 1968, injured and hurt. Along with his co-pilot, they spent time in the jungle waiting for U.S. forces to rescue them. It took them four days. He continues to serve his community and other capacities, not only helping the youth of today, but also veterans who are suffering similar events that he went through. You're going to enjoy this episode, and I really appreciate you supporting Straight Outta Combat Radio for another episode. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, is retired United States Army Colonel Ben Nicely. I've known Colonel Nicely for about 10 years now. He is very active in our neck of the woods here on the West Coast, the Gulf Coast of Florida. His story is compelling, and I want to tell you a little bit about Ben before we get going. Ben grew up in the small town of Osprey, Florida, just south of where we're at. Actually, 10 miles from here, right, Ben? Yes. He entered military service following his graduation from the University of South Florida in Tampa, and 28 years later, retired from the United States Army at the rank of full bird colonel. Ben doesn't usually talk about his awards and his decorations. And if you knew him, you'd know why. He's an extremely humble man. (coughs) But he had a very distinguished career. And part of that career, he had a tragic incident happen. While piloting a medevac helicopter, he and his co-pilot were shot down by a missile behind enemy lines and severely wounded in in a crash. And this happened in Vietnam. They were listed as missing in action on April 4th, 1968. And four days later, he was rescued by a very highly publicized and daring mission executed by an elite and heroic special operations team. Ben's going to tell us a little bit about that today. The details of the harrowing escape and evasion actions by Lieutenant Nicely and his co-pilot and the subsequent rescue efforts was a Time Magazine front page story that month and later detailed in a book called Dust Off 65, which was published in 1974. The infantry lieutenant who led the heroic rescue effort directly into the face of the enemy to rescue Ben and his co-pilot. Ben and his co-pilot were repatriated as a result of that successful rescue. I can tell you that Ben is candid, but he hides his physical scars well. His clothing covers the skin disfigurement of his burns, and you will hardly notice his limp. He'll tell us about that today. But he will be the first one to tell you, and we've had this discussion before, Colonel Nicely and I, about PTSD and the dreams and the things that still haunt not only him, but the brothers and sisters out there who are dealing with similar types of events. Ben serves on the board of directors of a wounded warrior organization called Operation Second Chance, and they're doing some phenomenal work. He is also on the board of directors of the Sarasota Military Academy and is the military and veterans liaison officer for the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office. He is a named member of the elite military order of Dedalians, and in 2013, Ben was inducted into the United States Army Aviation Hall of Fame. 
I am humbled and honored to have my good friend and fellow U.S. Army veteran, Colonel Ben Nicely, here on the show today. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, John. Thank you. What should I do? Get a little Just get a little bit closer. All right. He's, he's an old helicopter pilot. He's used to these comms. So, wow, what a story, Ben. We've been talking about this interview for a couple of years now. <laughs> I got to tell you. I'm just glad to have you here today. You know, let's just get started. Tell us about the Nicely household and what it was like growing up in Osprey. Oh well, my, um, as you said, I grew up within 10 miles of where we're sitting right now. My father was a Navy corpsman, and I probably never said this very often, but I think perhaps he was a little bit taken back by the fact that his son went into the Army rather than Navy. By all accounts, had a pretty normal growing up life. You know, um, girls on Saturday night, uh, athletics in junior high and high school. I was not a stellar academia student. I went to Manatee Junior College out of Riverview High School, and then my final two years at University of South Florida in Tampa. At that time, it was almost a thing to do to take a look at going in the service. The draft was engaged at that time, and I believe I had a probably a draft deferment. I don't recall specifics, but in any case, I applied uh, to join the Army with a direct commission out of University of South Florida in my senior year. And lo and behold, a telegram arrived, arrived one day that uh, was addressed to Second Lieutenant Ben Heisley. They had accepted me. I went off to Medical Service Corps Basic in San Antonio, Texas. And I had been very active in Boy Scouting in my young life, my young teenage years. In fact, I was a counselor at Camp Flying Eagle in Bradenton for probably six, eight years in a row. And finally, actually, it was the camp director at age 21. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm a little bit behind you, but I was a Boy Scout here in Sarasota County, and Camp Flying Eagle was where I got my first dose of poison ivy. You may have even, uh, <laughs> you might have been out there when I was out there. Yeah, I probably was. You know, scouting was a very, was a great experience. It was my, uh, my father had, uh, had polio. And so I didn't have a normal son-dad relationship from the perspective of, couldn't play baseball and things like that together. My dad uh, was uh, pretty well confined to, to bed or uh, couldn't walk. So scouting actually became the avenue for me to have a normal young boy activities. And I uh, dearly loved to spend every summer camp flying. I'm positive that I was out there because yep. you guys used to throw us in the pool to try to get the life-saving merit you badge. And I, remember, I remember those days. That's interesting. But I uh, thanks for sharing that. So anyway, off to the Army. Initially, I was slated to be a supply officer at a hospital in Vietnam, excuse me, in Japan. At that time, the buildup was going on. This was 1966. I kept watching these helicopters land in the parade field with red crosses painted on the door. And I thought, damn, you know, that looks like something I ought to do. I went down in the basement, as people do for so many things, and found the HR team and said, look, how about let me apply for go to flight school? They shared with me, they said, well, I'm sorry, Lieutenant, we can't do that because you're on orders to go to an overseas assignment in Japan. I said, oh, okay, bummer. And before I got out of my training at Fort Sam, that particular general hospital had been pulled off of, it basically been found that they, uh, it wasn't suitable from a hardware perspective that had been packed up for many years to go. So it was taken off orders and someone else got the assignment to go to Japan. And lo and behold, my very first day I heard that, I was back downstairs flying for flight school. I did go off to flight training at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And of course, I'm a medical service corps officer. So my 
Where is that's in Dothan, isn't it? It's in Dothan, Dothan Alabama. Enterprise Dothan area. Yeah. Actually, no. In my case, I went first to Weatherford, Texas, to Fort Walters, Texas. It was the primary helicopter training school. God, I don't know how many people were putting through every month, but that was the big push for helicopter pilots. So I think I did uh, perhaps six months at Fort Walters, and then six months I moved down to uh, Dothan, Alabama, and finished at Fort Rucker. Well, you know, you mentioned that all the helicopter guys going, all the pilots being trained, and I know we'll get to that, but the helicopter was a very important part of the missions in Vietnam. It sure was. That was the helicopter war, many folks have said. Uh, because of the terrain, it was clearly the only way, not the only way, but it's clearly the most efficient way to move uh, U.S. troops around. And so the era of assault helicopters, the era of moving an entire company of men in eight or 10, 12 helicopters was organized and came of age, particularly Fort Benning, Fort Bragg. And those units were deployed in the early 60s uh, to, to uh, Fort Vietnam. I then joined the medical evacuation helicopter units that uh, were at that time, they had gotten their start course in the Korea days with the little old bubble helicopters and we moved patients out on the, each skid on each side. Right. That was the, we see them in mass. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. That was where medevac helo operations got its initial initiation. In Vietnam, we, we moved uh, moving patients into Hueys. So I was part of that early Huey crowd. In the early days. That's the UH? UH-1. UH-1. Yeah. In the early 60s, two or three units were in Vietnam and very successful. You know, we began that. You will, they coined that issue of the golden hour. If uh, a wounded could be picked up and gotten to a, a, a triage table, definitive one, at a bash or a, or a surge hospital within an hour, it's amazing the uh, reduction in mortality associated with that. It was so successful, the fact that we could move patients by helicopter, that the Army, in its wisdom, said, let's just, we're going to invest in this. And at the peak of the Vietnam War, we had over 500 Hueys with red crosses painted on the side. Uh, well, and, and of course, 1968, the year of your event, the shoot down was, that was the Tet Offensive. So it was, that so was the big push. In fact, things were really heated up then. I think it was in May of 68 was the highest casualty month of the Vietnam War. 68 and 69 were the two hmm. really heavy casualty years. So I joined a unit called the 498th Air Ambulance Company. And in my uh, initial couple field assignments, uh, I live like, I guess, most combat troops. Uh, we were field sighted, one helicopter and one crew, and got acquainted with things like sea rations and living in a bunker underground. It wasn't like the officer's mess, was it? No, it wasn't. No. But, but actually, I didn't mind it at all. I actually today still have my little P-38, and I miss the sea oh, rations. Oh, man. Where were you stationed? Where was the base at? At Quinion. Quinion was about halfway down from north, from the DMZ to the south, about halfway down the state or the country, and it was on the coast. Quignon was a nice, sleepy little town that had not been invaded, if you will, by NVA. And the Viet Cong had sort of stayed west of uh, there. So Quignon was a town that was relatively untouched by the war effort, even to the end. Hmm. Uh, even after the Tet Offensive that invaded so many of the Vietnamese cities, Quignon a spared well, just simply because it was a little small fishing town right on the coast. That was where the Air Ambulance Company was established. We had a heliport. As far as combat goes, I had a fairly decent set of quarters. I lived in a little hooch with maybe a dozen other pilots. 
We had a local Vietnamese hooch maid would shine our shoes and do my laundry every couple of days. I hardly ever seen her. You know, I was gone all during the day, but these ladies would receive some small pittance for their efforts. I can remember cashing dollars in for Vietnamese money so that I could pay my hooch maid whatever the small amount was for doing my laundry. Hmm. So I didn't live like an infantryman, you know, in the mud. I did have a few little cot to sleep on most every evening. But things, Ben, come on, things got different though. When, <laughs> yes. you, when you got airborne, it was not go. it was not the idyllic seaside Vietnamese village. It was something a lot different. It wasn't was. It? You know, I learned quickly that uh, <laughs> it didn't matter to the enemy whether we had a Red Cross on the other side of the aircraft or not. Yeah. We were a war machine that they shot at. And every now and then we'd take a bullet here and there, which according to the crew chief, that was a big deal. We were fortunate no one in it was hurt until my incident that I'm going to talk about in a second where we were taken out with a, with a B-40. We learned quickly to pay attention to how to go in and out of a, an LZ, listening to the guys on the ground tell us what direction the bad guys were. Often, no, I should say not often, but whenever we could get uh, gunship support, I would delay a mission or delay the pickup and just hover overhead for a few thousand feet until the gunship, or in some cases even a an Air Force uh, forward air controller with uh, some Air Force aircraft would give us, provide us with some cover. That cover was really nothing more than laying down some ordnance where they thought the bad guys were. There were times it was probably most effective. There were times probably it didn't. It was just simply a good uh, morale factor for everybody involved. Like a placebo, right? Yeah. As Tet broke in 68, several aircraft from my organization were needed to go north up to the I-Corps. DMC area. My aircraft, I dust off 65, which was the call sign. We were sent to the city of Weifubai, just south of the actual citadel of the city of Wei. At the time, I had no idea that that was really the center of perhaps the most explosive combat going on at that time. I believe Tet actually began in January of 68 and February and March, it reached a tempo that was intense, and a lot of it was centered around the city of Wei. So it was NVA and Viet Cong together? It was predominantly NVA during Tet. Right. The Viet Cong were supportive, but the North Vietnamese had sent in just literally thousands and thousands of troops down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And at some point on the trail, then they turned east and came up in the Perfume Valley indirectly into the city of Wei. Right. The Marines had occupied the city of Wei as Tet began. And then, of course, as they began to get overrun, we brought in Army units from, gee, the 101st, 173rd. I forget now all the, but Wei became, if you will, the, the Achilles heel of trying to hold back the NVA. They were just so numerous. I remember landing what we call inside the Citadel during intense battle. And we took most of the Marines out to a hospital ship just offshore, either the repose or their sanctuary, USS repose, USS sanctuary. And I even took army patients there because we didn't have any really definitive hospitals established yet in the area. So you guys were running just missions all, all the time. Pretty constant. Went through a couple helicopters. One, uh, the hydraulics were shot out. We didn't realize it till after we pulled out of the Citadel and began to feel the feedback and the control did fail. We were on our third aircraft in way when we were finally taken out with a missile. An interesting story here, the crew chief who was killed in my shoot-down incident, James E. Richardson. There were three men, three soldiers on that? Four of them. Four of them. He was a, uh, a good Southern boy, 
from uh, Arkansas. And after we'd taken a couple, that particular aircraft, as soldiers do or as crew chiefs do, they would name their aircraft. As you well know, you know, Vietnam carried the same tradition of World War II and so on. Sure. So the side of our aircraft one day, I watched him sitting on a little stool painting on the door. He named the aircraft Magnet Ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, what do you, what is this? He says, sir, he says, we're taking too many, taking a lot of land. He says, there's a magnet in this aircraft. <laughs> there's some Arkansas humor for yeah, you right there. Arkansas humor. God. Magnet Ass. Little did he know, yeah. within a week later, we really took a big one. Yeah. Uh, calls would come often in the night. The Marines were heavily employed in that area. And the Marines flew H-34s, a larger old recipient. Sikorsky aircraft. Was that the one? Yeah, it's not like a Jolly, smaller than a Jolly Green Giant. Yes, yes, but an older, much older. And they generally would run in tandem, but they would not fly at night. So I got the Army aircraft that were field sighted and I Corps got most all the night missions. I went in and out of Quezon, which is a very popular Marine holding many times. That was the city under siege. Yes, it was. Quezon, the interesting thing, uh, the first time we landed at Quezon, on a pickup, we were talking to the folks on the ground and we landed and all of a sudden dude couldn't see a single person. And now this is a big Marine base. It had a runway long enough for one thirties to come in and out of. There wasn't a single person hmm. that we could find. So we sat there with the rotors going, you know, chit, 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 chit. And after about a minute or two, a couple of heads reared up out of the ground. And with three or four minutes later, here comes the patient. Well, we later learned that that was, that was routine for them. That when, when an aircraft would come into Quezon, there's no way in hell the local guys would. They knew that that would bring enemy fire. Become a target. That's right. Oh. So they waited a few minutes while we sat there as a potential target. And if nothing came in, no mortars came in, then they'd bring the patient out. So, wow. so that, I, Talk about being a sitting duck. Right. Magnet ass? Our, I mean, come on. Our, uh, so our trips in and out of Quezon were, were always trepidatious. Gosh. Uh, we call them ahead of time and say, look, we want you to have the patient on the ramp when we get there. That didn't matter. The smart Marines knew what they were doing. They said, nope, we're not going to bring that patient out till we make sure you're not going to get blown away. Gosh, that's almost like a suicide mission. <laughs> you know, and we didn't see it that way at the time. But And then, of course, the other fun mm. part about flying up there was that the two hospital ships would take turns being in close to shore. And at night, they would black out for obvious reasons. So during probably February and March, we Army medevacs would go in and all go into the hospital ships. And the Navy Airedales that are assigned to the hospital ship to land the helicopters back on the fantail, they'd been used to landing Navy helicopters. And they had paddles and flags and things which we were never trained on. So <laughs> I would set up for an approach to the back end of a hospital ship and about halfway down the approach where this guy would wave us off. He didn't like apparently the rate of closure or whatever, something about our approach. After about the second or third time, we just look at each other from front and say, screw it, we're going on in. We're land land. So we had to teach those Navy Airedales that this Army helicopter knew how to land on a Navy boat. Um, oh, gosh. The way you describe it, you know, even from taking off to the mission itself, flying at night, you know, for all intents and purposes, could be a suicide mission. And then, you know, you do your duty and then you go out to the sea 
and you're landing on this ship in the middle of nowhere. Is the ship stationary or is it moving? He's basically underway very slowly, but that's the bad part is for the hard part, which he's blacked out. So you call him on the radio and tell him you're inbound with with some offload. And they don't turn their lights on until you actually get on final approach. They'll light up the pad. So there were times that we thought we were set up for a proper approach and we were way to hell off. So you guys did not have, let's just no GPS. people listen, yeah. no, GPS, no GPS, no night vision goggles, anything. Right. We flew heading and distance, <laughs> and, wow. uh, but we did have a, an FM homing. So I get the ship to uh, give us a three count. He didn't want to give a five or six, anything longer than a three count. And the instruments in the aircraft would center up. And we'd say, all right, we knew we're headed in the right direction to him. But uh, it was, uh, yes, it was a challenge finding the boat sometimes. In fact, Navy guys have a fit hearing me call it a boat, uh, but uh, that's what we called it. When you guys were working, this was seven days a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You didn't get any R&R. That's true. That's true. Not when things were that hot. Yeah. So tell us about the day you guys had your accident. The day we were taken out, it was about midnight on, I believe, the second or third of April, 1968, we got a call from the 101st Airborne to uh, make a pickup on a hilltop. It was near a fire base called Bastogne, which was 101st calls all their places in honor of their World War II battle. Bastogne must have been a, a significant, I think it was probably a brigade size dugout in the middle of Perfume Valley. We launched late and en route the a command and control aircraft from probably a battalion commander said, dust off, uh, you guys need to go back. He says, this is going to be a hoist mission. And as most people know, night hoists are the most intense of all. He said, and, uh, and they're still under contact. He says, I don't want you to go in. He's a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander. So we roger that and said, yes, sir. Went back, refueled. Sure enough, at around sunup, the uh, call came back and we launched knowing it was going to be a hoist. That means, now the hoist for people listening, that means you lower the basket down. That's right. And actually, we couldn't even use a basket. The foliage was so thick that we used what's called a jungle penetrator. It was just nothing more than a bullet-looking heavy device at the end of the cable. And once you get it on the ground, you could fold out four seats on it. It looked like a, almost like a, just a large bullet, if you will, right? to get it down through the trees. When we got in the area, it was probably triple jungle canopy. A routine modus operandi that we always used was we'd ask the folks on the ground to pop smoke, but not identify the color. We in the aircraft would then respond when we saw the smoke and say, I have yellow, or I have red, or I have purple. Right. The reason for that was is that the enemy around them would often pop American smoke too, hoping that they could get the helicopters to come to them. So we had this little game, cat and mouse game, that they, we asked the friendlies, simply pop smoke, I'll call color. And they knew that. The experienced sergeants kind of knew what to do. That, Sure enough, smoke began to filter up through the trees, and we identified it as yellow. Came back on the ground, ground radio, said, yes, you got us. So yeah. we hovered in over, we took up a hover over the top of the trees near where the smoke was coming up. And the plan there would simply to be to, kind of that both crew members laying on their bellies in the back of the aircraft looking down, simply looking down through the jungle as best they could to see if they could spot the guys on the ground. Made the first pass, hovering probably just around the top of the trees, and didn't see anything. So sort of moved around again, if you will, to make a little pattern, and came back 
to about the same general area where the smoke had come up. And uh, the uh, crew chief or medic, don't recall, said, sir, I think I got him on the ground. So we held up and we're basically stable at that point at a hover, maybe 20, 30 feet above the trees. And all of a sudden, I recall that uh, one of the crew in the back had indicated the hoist was going down. At that point, the cockpit lit up in a bright white light. And I remember it was like the movies we see of the of a nuclear blast, how everything just goes all white and sort of in a very slow way. At that point, we'd been hit by this missile that had come across the valley and, and hit us in the tailbone. My part of the story is at that point, mm. the old brain said, you don't like what's happening. <laughs> and it clicked off. And I truly don't remember anything until three hours later. What happened in that period of time is, is that the aircraft exploded, the tail boom severed, the rocket hit probably about where the crew chief was laying, and he was killed instantly. My co-pilot pulled power, and we spun like a top without a tail boom, bouncing off of treetops, we're told, for almost a quarter of a mile. So just basically skipping off the trees. Basically, we looked like a top. Yeah. There was an aircraft of the first cab that was airborne at the time that saw saw what was happening, saw the explosion of smoke, and he observed that we flew down towards, we bounced west down the Perfume Valley towards the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We're actually going farther into enemy-held territory. He, by the way, called in a, a basic location. So this is where I think the dust off went down, which later became a, you know, most important piece of information, which caused him to find us. Basically, exactly. He was out of fuel and couldn't stay, but his name was Goodman, Doris Goodman. I remember this from the records of what went on. And we crashed. As we went down into the ground, my co-pilot, a West Virginia boy named Mike Meyer, crawled out of the aircraft and came over and kicked in the windshield on my side of where I was sitting. Right. Were you guys right side up or on your side? or what? We were on the left side. My okay. door was down in the dirt. Gotcha. Mike uh, kicked in the window put the fire out on my clothes. By this point, my uh, clothes were burning. Unbuckled my seatbelt and pulled me out through the, the window. Because the aircraft had crashed left side down, my ankle was totally crushed and it rotated to almost 190 degrees. And I had burns uh, from the clothes. We didn't have Nomex flight gear on at that time. Everything was just standard fatigues. Right. He went back to try to find any more crew and he couldn't. And the fire was too intense. And so about... Uh, I guess about noontime or so, I opened my eyes with my head on his lap, and Mike says, Ben, it's just you and I. So I you a, guys were in deep jungle still. Yes, we sure like, were. Yeah. I had a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson pistol on my hip. That's all I owned. That's all I had at the point. Mike had a pistol, too. We had no survival gear, no radios or anything. We decided to, at that point, I realized I couldn't walk. I said, Mike, look at my leg. It's twisted 180 degrees the wrong direction. And I said, I can crawl. And so we spent that first night there near the crash site. We could hear the trucks on the Ho Chi Minh Trail and hear the enemy talking, actually hear voices that were not American. And that caused us to think, we need to get the hell away from here because they're going to come to where this crash site is. So we spent the next day. So were they looking for you at that time? We don't know. No. Yeah, you don't really know. We don't know. Actually, at that time, U.S. troops were not because we were too deep into territory that there were no U.S. forces there. The next day, we spent the next day going up up a hill, thinking, this was our thought process, is that, well, hell, let's get to a hilltop. Maybe we can flag somebody. 
the truth is that was a pretty dumb assessment on our part because it was too thick a jungle for that to happen. But we moved in some direction. I don't even know whether north, south, east, or west. Did you guys have water? No, no food and water. And I would lose on a lot of fluid with open third-degree burns. Mm-hmm. So Mike said to me, Mike's face was all red and blistered, and his hands were blistered where he had come in and pulled me out of the fire. And I'd make jokes about him. I said, you know, you're ugly as hell because of all the blisters <laughs> on your face. At some point that day, he said, you know, this is kind of dumb. If we're going we're to get rescued, they're going to go to where the aircraft's at. Yeah, it makes sense. So we spent the second day going back down the hill, crawling all the way, and we never found the aircraft. You were so disoriented. That's right. At that point, I was getting pretty delirious. And I remember, to his credit, I said, said, Mike, why don't you launch out whatever direction you think is right? I says, and bring somebody back. Bless his heart. He said, no, we're a team. He says, we're staying right together. He knew I couldn't walk. So we had put a little pact between us that we will not identify ourselves, let ourselves be known until we could look whoever it was in the eye and knew that they were Americans going to rescue us because there were bad guys pretty close to us. Is that pact what kept you focused? Well, a little bit, except that that second night, wild hogs came around us, scared the living you-know-what out of me. Yeah. I had I had drawn my pistol. I thought this is it. We're done. And I was actually wondering, what do I do? Do I do I shoot whatever comes at me or do I shoot myself? I knew that I didn't want to be captured. And lo and behold, we got a glimpse of a pack of wild pigs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I almost lost it that night. In fact. So at any rate, finally in the distance, maybe this was the third day, we heard voices said, Hey, dust off. Hey, dust off. And Without even thinking about our pack, we both threw our hands up in the air. Yeah, 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 we're over here. And then we looked at you and said, oh, shit, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and then, was it, But it was the rescue team. Oh, gosh. Uh, a five-man team from 2nd of the 5-0 Deuce, 101st Airborne, led by a lieutenant, Tim Lickness, who's a California boy. I still, amazing enough, I still keep in touch with old Tim. They'd actually had a firefight getting to us. I remember right, it was a, a medic, three infantrymen, and a guy that carries the pig, I guess I want a M60, a larger. But anyway, it was a machine gunner. Yep, five man team. Lo and behold, they got to us and began taking us the right direction. They, they had a compass and they knew what they were doing. So that evening, fourth day, I guess we were under there. Were they carrying you? Yeah, yeah. The medic, they took turns carrying me on the way back out of the, mm. of the area. I'll never forget, they had some water, but the medic offered me a can of apricots, sea ration apricots, which I normally don't like. <laughs> Boy, that was, it's funny, I remember the apricots. In any case, got us back to a hilltop. We were lifted out, yes, the, the following day. You know, the two people saved my life. Clearly, my co-pilot, Mike Meyer, for getting me out of the Marine aircraft. And then I always credit this five-man team when they had an initial firefight. They could have turned around and said, hey, this is too tough to do. Uh, but they persisted in coming to find us. So uh, I tell people ever since then, you know, they ask me, how old am, am I? And I give them the age that I am from that moment forward. They look at me and I say, I'm only 35, I'm 45, or whatever. And I said, that's when I got my second watch. That's a pretty harrowing story. And, you know, and fully understand because, you know, 
the way you outline it and all of the variables that were working against you and your co-pilot for all intents and purposes, you probably shouldn't be here. Yeah. But yeah. the bravery of your co-pilot and you uh, the fortitude to keep hanging on and these other you bet. these U.S. Army infantrymen coming in to get you guys, it's a testimony. And it's of course, say to those guys today, I give them both the title of heroes, and you've done this enough with people. They don't accept that title. They say, hey, just doing my job. Part of the job. and Doing my job. So now you're like 35 years old or maybe well, a little bit older. But I'll tell you a little, so more, tell, this, so little more of this story. I, when they got me to the MASH hospital, I was bouncing up and down on the litter in shock. The nurse, <laughs> they were cutting clothes off and trying to figure out, you know, what day we got our hands here. And I leaned over to the nurse and I said, ma'am, uh, I need a blanket. Now, this was like in the middle of 100 degree weather in Vietnam. She was busy. I had a little cocky, I guess, myself. I grabbed her arm. I said, ma'am, I need a blanket. She got right in my face, and she said, Lieutenant, she says, you don't need a blanket. <laughs> she says, in all my years of nursing, I've never seen anybody as emaciated as you. She says, you have no blood pressure. I can't even find a pulse. She says, one more day without fluids, you'd be on a different table than mine. She says, so I just want you to shut up, lay your head down, and let me go to work with you. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Then the real fun began, didn't it? I spent I spent uh, nine more months in. Uh, I went to the burn ward in Brook Hospital in San Antonio for skin graft work, and then to the orthopedic ward where they attempted to save my uh, put pins and screws and save my ankle. And somewhere during that period of time, I was sitting in the bed one day, and a young E four comes along with a briefcase, and I acknowledged, had a visitor. He said, "Sir." Uh, I'm here to survey you out of the army. I said, whoa. I said, I don't think that's what we're going to do. He said, I said, I want to stay in. He says, no, I don't think that's going to happen, sir. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, you go find somebody with more rank than you. I said, I want to talk about this. Lo and behold, I worked my way all the way up to a brigadier general. <laughs> Name was Hamrick. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, you've got to have a hell of a profile. But he says, I guess we can keep you in. I said, and I want to fly again. This old man said, I don't think that's going to happen. So I stayed in the Army, and I began the necessary requests, if you will, and bureaucracy to get back on flight status. I didn't have a left leg that would uh, that could probably do the trick. So after working through all that, I was the first pilot in, told the first pilot from the Vietnam era, that was put back on flight status with a prosthetic left leg and uh, a left ankle. And I flew a dual status for a while and then was released to fly completely okay uh, with the prosthesis on my left leg. You made a history, Ben. And, you know, looking back on Vietnam and the things that happened there, what you witnessed and what you went through, would you do it over again? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I sure would. And I never thought about doing anything else. But I went on to... You know, have a good assignments, good career. It was the military was a was a great uh, for me. My watch. I was fortunate enough to work for good people. And five years became ten. Ten became twenty. My last assignment, I was on General Norman Schwarzkopf's special staff in the first Gulf War. Again, I I do it all over again. No question at all about that. Well, congratulations and thank you. Let me ask you a little bit about your transition. You were a young officer. 
and you went through that experience, which you just described, and then you, your uh, perseverance and your, as you say, your cockiness maybe, <laughs> got the brigadier to say, hey, you know what, we need this guy. And then all these great assignments, serving with General Schwarzkopf. What was your transition like into the civilian world? You know, it's a good question. And you'll find different answers to that. For me, and I'll call it my watch, that period of time from when I went in in the early mid 60s to the mid 90s. After Vietnam, the Army was really broken. And most great historians will say that. You know, we, we came out of Vietnam not victorious to a country that was in turmoil about all sorts of social issues. And in general, the Army was in bad shape in the, from 75 to probably 85. And I'm part of that crowd of soldiers that elected to stay, if you will. Maybe uh, we didn't, at the time we didn't think about it, you know, we had to make it work. It was a period of time that a lot of enlisted soldiers will say, oh man, you know, this was, this was not a good place to be. And I, I get it. The Army had a lot of itself, its transition to do coming out of the Vietnam War. There was very little sympathy on the part of Washington, D.C. to give it much. This wasn't just the Army. This was all services. Right. Uh, you know, let's don't buy new airplanes and let's don't buy new aircraft carriers. And for God's sake, let's don't buy any more, you know, rifles for soldiers. So we did with what one would think about uh, a lot less, did what we had to do with less. So the transition for those people after the Vietnam War that stayed, NCOs probably kept the Army together. And if there was a, a hero crowd, I would say it was them. I personally, because I was a pilot, I was fortunate enough to go from flight assignment to flight assignment. So my transition, if you will, was not as tumultuous as a grunt soldier. I shared with you earlier in a comment, one of the dividends that came out of the Vietnam War, if there is such a thing, it really isn't a dividend of a war, but one of the dividends that I made note of was that the soldiers coming back from the Vietnam period were treated poorly. You know, we know stories about being spit upon and things thrown at them. And, and they would, they'd come back. The policy was you have to come back in a uniform. Well, the hell they hit California, run in the bathroom and change out of their uniform into a t-shirt and jeans because they didn't want to be ridiculed by people in the airport. I think the dividend is, is that the animosity, that feeling by the public about the Vietnam War, they took it out on the soldier rather than taking it out on the politicians that yeah, right. And it suddenly hit, I think, the public that, wow, we did this wrong. We shouldn't have done that. And so the dividend, as I see it, is, is that that'll never happen again. American people, whether you're a, doesn't matter your political orientation, doesn't matter your, where you're from or what your beliefs are about anything in society, American people says, you know, that's the wrong thing to do. Don't ridicule and don't do that to our soldiers coming back. So I, I think the American public has, is a benefit of that dividend. That'll never happen again. Today, soldiers coming back from deployment, wherever it is, and however you feel about that war, for the most part, they are welcomed home. And they are afforded the respect for having endured the sacrifice that they did. Well, you know, that's a great point, Ben. And the flip side of that, too, and we had mentioned this earlier when we were when Ben and I were talking, is that, but the soldiers and sailors and airmen who served in Vietnam, too, learned, too. 
And I got to tell you, from what I've witnessed, you know, my Army career was a lot longer after yours and shorter. But what I've witnessed is the veterans from the Vietnam era have really stood tall and have stood out and been there to support, along with the American public, have been there to support the younger generation of our fighting forces. So, yeah, I would say that's a huge dividend. They got it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that generation of Vietnam servicemen kind of quietly said to themselves, this ain't going to happen again. Wherever I go, whatever event, whatever rally, whenever there's a Vietnam veteran or Vietnam veterans together, well, I tell you, they stand out. And yeah. they, they really make me proud that I'm part of that lineage. Colonel Nice, let me ask you this. If you had a message to the American public about a veteran, especially a combat veteran, what would you want them to know? Because we hear hmm. the stories about how broken they are. And, yeah. And be careful because, you know, hair triggers and yeah. what do you you want the public to know? That's a very interesting question and a very poignant one. And one that we all ought to be able to answer immediately, yet we can't. What comes to my mind are some thoughts dealing with how to help transition these soldiers back into society. We do a great job at taking a young soldier, sailor, airman, male or female, and we harden them, if you will. We train them to do their military job. We sent them off to combat, and nobody wants to experience and go through what they see and experience in combat. And then we, in a heartbeat, Hmm. put them on an airplane, and we bring them home, and we ask them to reintegrate. And it's not as easy as the American public might think. The story of the X number of suicides a day is real. The story of veterans coming back and having difficulties with family, with everything they did before, it's real. And I would say something has come to my mind. The human resources agencies of companies need to be more sympathetic to giving a chance, giving jobs to these individuals, rather than say to them, if they put four letters of PTSD on their application and they get a call the next day from HR saying, sorry, we don't have anything for you. That's the wrong thing to do. So one, I would say, we need to find a way to help them reintegrate with work. Medical, I believe, is not a serious problem it has been in the past. Veterans Administration, military medicine, I believe, is doing as good a job as, or is doing a good job. And if you ask the veterans coming back today, what's the most number one thing they worry about the most? And amazingly enough, it's the words jobs, J-O-B-S. And, and somehow the corporate America is missing the boat. The attorneys of the corporations have said, oh, don't take the chance with this person. You know, they're going to mess up your company. They're, they have PTS. And so the HR people listen to that. I hear every day stories all the time of young folks saying, I applied for a job, and they tell me the next day I can't, you know, they don't have anything for me. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind is a transition in the area of jobs. The other is we need some sort of a national central repository it's easy to get help from. For instance, you dial 911 anywhere in the nation and you get what you need in an emergency to get the help you want. We ought to be able to dial some number and say, I'm a vet. I sure would like help with this or that. Or uh, the VA check didn't arrive today and I'm going to lose my car or I'm going to lose my home or I'm getting a bad record because I can't make some payments. Whatever the issues are for this veteran that has issues that the average person in the public doesn't quite get it. There ought to be some place you go to. Some communities do this very well, but most of the country does not. 
I would would add, Sarasota is a great community in that regard. We have resources, we have organizations, and if a veteran wants to find some assistance, either medically or job-wise, if he tries, he or she tries, they're going to find help easily in Sarasota. But there are many, many parts of the country where they're on their own, and there is just no place to go. I think our country should try to find some way to come up with some general common assistance, if you will, line. I think that's um, some great points. And I think that's a great idea, you know, to have a special number because you're right. The resources are out there. They're harder to find in some areas than others. And a lot of veterans need to find out, which leads me to this next question, you know, based on your personal experience. Let's just say I'm a transitioning combat veteran and I'm in that dark place. Yep. What advice would you give them, sir? Wow. The best advice, as I see it, is you've got to do two things. You've got to surround yourself or you've got to make yourself go associate with a friend, a family member who might get it, who might understand the dark place you're in. It's easily said, not easy to do. And the second thing is those of us who admit to whomever we want to admit to that we have PTS, you got to remember to tell, tell your story. Vocalize the darkness that you feel because each and every time you do that, it gets you a little bit more out of the dark. It gets better. The story I just told you about my shoot down, I couldn't tell that story for up to 10 years after I came back from combat to my own daughters. I just couldn't do it. And I found that each and every time I would try to explain, verbalize, go through the lineage of here's what happened this day to that day. Each time I talked about it, it got a little better for the next time to tell it. And so when somebody says to you or to their family, to their wife, to their mom, their dad, I can't talk about what happened that day in Benghazi. I can't talk about something that happened to me, you know, in the green zone in Iraq in 2007. What you need to know is, is that you need to get them to talk about it just a little bit more each time. And it gets better. And before they know it, I mean, let's face it, that issue, that dark hole will be there the rest of their lives, no doubt about it. But if they can talk through it, the more times they do it, the easier it removes that big block that can well turn into the thing we don't want to happen. And that is the feeling that I have no further place to go except eliminate myself. And so I find that one, find a friend. It may not even be a family member. It may be just another veteran who gets it. Find somebody to talk about it with. These hotlines that we have that we talk about all the time. Right. People might say, you know, well, yeah, that's just a cop-out by bureaucrats trying to cover their butt. Well, to some degree, it's not. Those hotlines help. I can assure you right now that if you call one of those numbers and you're sincere about asking for help, people are going to show up on your door very fast. And I've personally seen that happen several times with folks who have made that call. So number one, ask for help. Number two, tell the story. Whatever it is that is the biggest boogeyman you got, the biggest black hole, the biggest thing that I can't get through, got to talk about it. Definitely some great points, sir. You know, we talked about the therapy of storytelling and you really pointed something out that is important. You know, it's not a weakness to reach out because I can tell you firsthand, I was one of those guys that called a, a crisis hotline back in 2014, dealing with my own stuff and just great words of wisdom. So, you know, like so many veterans, you know, dedicated veterans, 
you served our country for 20 years and you're on like three or four different missions. One here at the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office is the liaison. I know you work real close with the young cadets at the Sarasota Military Academy in Operation Second Chance with one of our good buddies, Kevin Kinney, yep. who's also a veteran. But what does freedom mean to you? Well, freedom is something that I'm sorry to say this, but most of the, those of us in USA take for granted. We're coming up on Thanksgiving in a, less than a month now. And this might be a roundabout way to answer your question, but my family has a tradition that each Thanksgiving we go around a table and say, what are you thankful for this year? And hands down, to get to your point, my answer is always the same. Man, I'm thankful for having been born in the U.S. of A. And you think about that, that's the very essence of freedom. How would you like to have been born in Bangladesh? You know, some of the places around the world that they don't even understand what freedom is or what freedoms that they they might have. It's not a good answer, but I always I share that. Somebody asked me, what am I thankful for? And I'm thankful I was born in the United States of America. And I don't know a single person that can't respect and understand that one sentence. Freedom for those of us in U.S. of A., those of us in much of the world, is simply you enjoy the, the liberty, if you will, to run your life your way. And uh, that means different things to different people. But I wish we didn't take it for granted the way we do. I see the young generations today that protest, you know, I want free education, I want free this, I want free that. They have no idea what kind of freedoms they already have. And they have this entitlement orientation that they don't realize they're already entitled so much for having been born in the United States of America. I'm glad you pointed that out, sir. And you're right. We can assure you, both of us having been outside the country, that the rest of the world does not live like we do. Amen. Even the developed countries, not just the third world countries, that they don't have the luxuries of freedom that we have. And I'm right along there with you, sir. I take nothing for granted. And anybody that has seen those things and they understand it full well, what we have to lose. And I know that we got called up again. We'd both be there. Amen to that. And a lot of people, perhaps younger than you and I, they truly don't get that, John. They don't get it. And I also get, I understand that. I do. They just don't get it because they've been, they have grown up and raised in a freedom environment, almost with too much entitlement. And they just don't get it. When we talk about the greatest generation or we talk about a Veterans Day or a Memorial Day, I worry that we're losing the significance of those moments. One thing I do, each time we have a Veterans Day parade in Sarasota, I make it a point to walk with the cadets of the Sarasota Military Academy down Main Street. I tell the cadets before we leave the school, I want you all to look sharp, but I enjoy the liberty to go over and shake people's hands on the edge of the side of the road when I see somebody with a hat on or a, or a jacket denoting their veteran status. Last year during the parade, I walked over to shake the hands of a couple guys sitting in lawn chairs on the Main Street. Next to one of the older gentlemen was a younger young girl that I said, I want to thank you for your service. I'm shaking the hands of the older gentleman. The young girl turned to me and said, there must have been a discussion about Vietnam. The young girl, about maybe eight or 10 years old, says, sir, what's Vietnam? And I wanted to stop right there <laughs> and not go any farther with the rest of the parade and try to talk to that young lady, but I couldn't do it. And then my point is, is that 
we have to do as much as we can, particularly veterans, to preserve the understanding and feel the savvy of what freedom really is to those young folks. That's a great point. You know, one thing you mentioned, Sarasota Military Academy, it does give me hope because whenever I'm around the premises is over there, I love to hear yes, sir, and no, sir. And yes. it's nice to know that there are still these refuges, if you will, or these academies, these schools in the high school that teach the significance of honor and duty and respect Patriotism. and consequences for actions. I just really appreciate Sarasota Military Academy and, and your affiliation with them. And we've been having conversation with retired United States Army aviation helicopter pilot, Colonel Ben Nicely. Really humbled to have him here. I wanted to ask Ben as we get closer to the end of our conversation, and I know we're going to have more. Do you have a mantra or a famous quote, maybe it's your own quote, about life in general that keeps you driving forward? Wow. What comes to mind when you ask that question? This may not be as inspirational as, as if we thought about it a while, but I had the, the uh, privilege to work for General Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War. He had a little sign on his desk. I don't think it's original with him, but perhaps it was. But I still carried that with me all through my years after the military. It's a brief quote. And you've heard it before. And that quote is, either lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. And that was on his desk. It was the only plaque. Most of people, you know, put a plaque with their name and their title and whatever they are. It's the only plaque he had on his desk. Either lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. And if you think about that in life, it's a pretty good mantra. Either lead or follow, which is sometimes the right thing to do. But if you can't do either one of those, then just get out of the way. Don't block the door because there's a lot of people that are going to do one of those first two things that are going to make things happen. <laughs> I like that. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, and the thing about that is there's always that 2% that wants to put the monkey wrench in the system. Yep. And they're the ones that raise most of the consternation. 98% of us just want to either lead or follow. And right. to know that that was on General Short's you know, desk and you carried it with you is significant to those of us who appreciate those sentiments. How can people find out more about Operation Second Chance? And how can they find out more about you and your book? Oh, well, the book's out of print. The book that Chronicalized the rescue of Dust Off 65. I'm told people who try to get a hold of it now, you apparently can, it's just no longer in print. And I think maybe in this day and age of Amazon and some of the ways of reading books on the internet might be able to find it, but I know you can't get the physical book anymore. Operation Second Chance is a one of many organizations around the country that dedicates its work. It's a 501c3 that dedicates itself to doing things which we've just talked about. That is helping wounded warriors recover and reintegrate back in the, into society. Most of our work is with folks who, are, who, in fact, are wounded. It's part of our charter. And as you know, the wounds are not only physical, they're invisible with many, many warriors. We're not a large organization. We only have three paid staff. We do something with about a million dollars a year, all through donations, close to 90% of what we take in goes directly to support things like retreats, payment of mortgages, bringing moms and dads and an airplane ticket back to a hospital, and what we call a direct support. The majority of the people in Operation Second Chance are old, retired military folks like myself scattered around the country. We're in 33 states, and we find folks that need help, and we make that happen. Example, here in Southwest Florida, 
you mentioned Kevin Kenny. Kevin's an angel in this regard. We bring warriors out of the hospital to do fishing trips out east of town. Uh, some of the ranches will bring our folks out there to go on hunting trips. Just come to Florida, go to Disney. Example, last a couple months ago, there was 100% female veteran from the state of Maine that came down here to receive her service dog. While in Sarasota, we went to the Ritz-Carlton and said, would you mind putting this lady up while she's here getting her service dog? And most people would say, holy cow, it's not something the Ritz does. That's exactly what the Ritz manager said. But then he said, but it's a hell of a good idea. And sure enough, we put this gal up for or the rich did put this gal up for three nights. Good for them. That's great work. Uh, There are other businesses here in town that when we bring warriors here for a retreat, they simply say, tell me when and where I'll feed them. And so we have an amazing repertoire of folks uh, like Gecko's food uh, system that uh, says, hey, bring me whatever you got. The food's on us. And so we have a wonderful array of people in town. That, that do, and, and so that's what Operation Second Chance does. We do things in the form of retreats and direct support to help ease those burdens, if you will, that, that are going to occur when uh, someone is wounded. The retreats, to give one last story, the retreats are a big factor in healing. We had an incident where young Marine, 19 years old, had just received his new prosthesis at Walter Reed, and he was scheduled to come to a uh, retreat here in southwest Florida. And the medical team says, no, it's too, too soon. You, we just, you've only had your, your this new leg the last couple of days. He says, why don't you wait till the next retreat? His girlfriend said to the doctor, Walter Reed, B.S., we're going on that damn Florida trip. <laughs> <laughs> they came with five other veterans, and we went to a beach at uh, Cayo Costa, and we're having a picnic. And he says, you know, I'd love to go in the golf, but I don't know what to do about this leg. And he's six who was with the group, says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, John, you got a bad left leg, and I got a bad right leg. He says, let's tell you what let's do. Let's, let's take these days. He says, you, you can go in, and he says, that prosthetic, and he says, the government will buy you a new one. He says, I already know that. He says, but let's throw these two wooden legs on a towel, put our arms around each other, and use each of our outside legs and go swimming. And I got a picture of that. Fabulous. It's got to be a great shot. <laughs> right. American fighting spirit is what that's called. The med team, Walter Reeds, later said that those three days away for that young 19-year-old kid, that was the best thing that happened to him. Well, thanks for sharing that, you Colonel. Bet. You bet. Appreciate that. And I just wanted to uh, thank you for being with us here today on Straight Out of Combat Radio. I'm glad you made it back. I know your daughters and family are glad you made it back and very privileged and honored to be able to be part of your story today. And just want to let you know that whatever we can do to help out any of your causes, you know, you've known me for a decade now, but we're always here. So you choked me up today, but that's good. This is good. It feels good. It's what NCO you know, do. That's so right. We, we got to keep you guys tell, on your toes. So You, you got me but, to tell some stories, and I got some tears in my eyes, and a choke in my throat. And the point is, it's only my buddy John could do that. So I thank, I thank well, you. Well, your story that. means a lot, So, and, uh, and I'm glad I got it. And Great. Thank Great. you, sir. God bless America. You got to light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Save us all.